0: Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. What images of Jesus come to mind to you when you think of images of Jesus? One famous image is the baptism of Christ seen in the Sistine Chapel. You know, I I think the idea of what this picture presents in our world is changing, uh, rightfully so, but when you look up images of Jesus, most images of Jesus depict Jesus as a sad white person, even though he grew up in the Middle East. Through Lent, we want to make our way to Easter by focusing more fully on who Jesus is. This year we were drawn to the phrase from the Bible that describes why Jesus came to earth. And there's, it's it's this phrase, the son of man came to blank. So if you had to fill in that blank, how would you complete that phrase? The son of man came to blank. To love, maybe, to preach, to bring the kingdom. The Bible uses this phrase three times. First one is, the Son of Man did not come to be, to, serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The next one is, for the Son of God came to seek and to save the lost. And the third time this is used, it says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Now, the first two clearly are Jesus' purpose and why Jesus came. He came to serve, to give his life, to seek and save the lost. But the third one is how Jesus came. He came eating and drinking. Now you'd think that the Son of God, uh, the, uh, the, of the, the God of the universe would come down to earth and, and maybe he'd come a little more powerfully, a little more majestically, like Jesus would enter a city in a meeting and all he'd come down in the clouds of heaven and all the angels would be with him in this blaze of glory. That's, that's kind of what we would expect, right? But it says instead Jesus simply comes eating and drinking. God just does things differently than we would ever think so often. Jesus was known for eating and drinking and often hung out with persons who the religious people would call sinners, who likely ate and drank too much, which is why some religious people falsely accused Jesus of himself being a a, a glutton and a drunkard. We also see that the Pharisees said to Jesus, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking." So Jesus came eating and drinking, and while he did meals with people, he communicated so much of who he is and what the kingdom of God is all about, and that's going to be our focus for these 40 days of Lent. Now, that may seem a little strange as a focus for Lent, because so often when we think of Lent, we think of fasting, and yet we believe God wants to do something through this emphasis to reveal more of who he is and how we live in community that makes a difference in the world. So... If you're one of those people who are fasting or fasting certain foods, I just want to apologize right now because we're going to talk through this season about a lot of incredibly good food and feasting. So today we begin with Jesus' first public miracle. He's celebrating at the big wedding and Jesus saves the celebration party from being a bust. So think about this. For nearly 30 years, Jesus, the one who crafted the universe with his voice, has kept his miracle working abilities hidden. But that changes in one day. So why does Jesus do his first public miracle here? What was Jesus thinking? This miracle that we're going to talk about sets the tone for everything that is to come. So let's read it right now and then we'll discuss it a little more. On the third day, a wedding took place in Canaan of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus' disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not come. And his woman said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water so they filled them to the brim. But you have saved the best till now. So, if you're gonna do your first miracle, if you're Jesus and you're gonna do your first miracle, what would you choose to do? Maybe you'd probably say, Well, I'm gonna raise somebody from the dead. Or I'm gonna walk on water. Would it be making water into wine so that a party at a wedding party doesn't go have to end early? I mean, turning water into wine for a wedding dance doesn't seem to be the best marketing strategy to convince people that you are the coming, long-awaited Messiah. No one's dying, no one's starving, no one's possessed by demons. We wonder, I think sometimes about this story, is this lack of wine really that big of a deal for the creator of the universe to care about? However, this occasion is the perfect way for Jesus to reveal who he is and his purpose. There's the miracle itself, and then there is the rich symbolism it gives. See, the way John writes his eyewitness account, his Gospel of John, he uses miracles like parables to teach us things that can often go unnoticed if not careful. And first, this miracle begins begins at a celebration, a feast. Since we want... Classic uh, earlier in the pictures, here's, here's another famous classic painting of this wedding feast. If you think, though, about a feast, what pictures come to your mind? Maybe it's Thanksgiving. For me, right as COVID was unfolding in 2020, we were on our first cruise, got delayed a couple extra days, so it was kind of nice because we got to enjoy what I'm going to talk about a little bit longer. Uh, food was everywhere. I had never seen so many options and so much great food every day, feasting in abundance all hours of the day. It was wonderful. Maybe not here, but it was wonderful. That's the image Jesus is connecting to the Messiah, the Savior's purpose. See, Isaiah prophesied about the coming Messiah saying this, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine and the best meats and the finest wines. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Strongly embedded for the Jews was waiting for their Messiah who would bring provision and abundance for an incredibly long-lasting feast. Isaiah continues this prophecy in the following verses. He describes how the feast would continue forever. He says, the Lord will swallow up death forever and wipe away the tears from all faces. See, this wedding feast at Cana sets the stage to show how Jesus will fulfill this very prophecy of Isaiah and preside over the best feast that is coming at the end of history. Jesus chose this first miracle to be at a party. Because Jesus has come to set everyone dancing and laughing for his eternal celebration. Feasting abundance, joy, laughter. When you think of God, when you think of Jesus, are these the first things that you think of? Many people have let go of their faith because they just want to have fun and enjoy life. They see Christianity as having too many rules and no joy. Is that what Jesus meant when he said, follow me, that following me equals no more fun, that if you submit your life to Christ, you give up all that fun? See, if that's what you think, Jesus is saying to you, you don't have a clue who I am, because I am the God who makes a feast for you. I mean, in this miracle alone, Jesus makes 150 gallons of wine. That's 757 bottles of the best $500 a bottle wine. That's 2,000 pounds of grapes used to make that wine on a normal basis. Jesus shows us that He brings joy. He loves to celebrate and have a good feast and a dance. So don't reject Christianity because you think it is a joyless life. This turning of water into wine reveals how also God does miracles. He is over nature. All things are created by him. So he takes this simple H2O and mutates the molecular structure and turns it into something beautiful and flavorful. Every atom in the universe is submitted to him, the one who created it even blood cells and brain cells and cancer cells and all sorts of other cells. That's creative authority. If we really grasp that truth, we'd have faith to believe God more more consistently for things that seem impossible. And if God can do that with water, then what can he do with your life? Getting back to the story, before Jesus made the water into wine, we see even more symbolism. When Jesus' mother Mary tells Jesus the wine is almost out, it's a serious thing because weddings in that day were not just for close family and friends. This was a a community-wide event that lasted for days. Some weddings were known to last up to a week. So to run out of something as essential as wine would have led to social consequences of community shame and disgrace for the bridegroom's family. Mary comes to Jesus with the crisis because she knows who he is. She knows at some point Jesus will show that he's the real Messiah. And maybe it could be right now. And Jesus responds to her, woman, why do you involve me? Now, I don't know about you, but I think many of us respond to this as Jesus coming across rude and disrespectful. But that's not actually what's happening here because later, while Jesus on the cross, Jesus also addresses Mary in the same way. It's a, a, an address of honor when he ensures she is cared for after his departure. Jesus says, woman, here is your son, referring to John, his disciple, who she said, who he said, you take good care of my mom. When Jesus says, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. He's foreshadowing a coming climax that is unexpected. Both phrases, my hour has not yet come, and the wine itself, both foreshadow Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. However, remember, nobody at the wedding has any idea what Jesus is referring to when he says this or when they drink the wine he creates. This symbolism remains hidden in plain sight at that moment. The writer John also began telling the event by mentioning the wedding day was on the third day. Jesus and his disciples had been on a two-day walk in order to get to Canaan. Yet the third day also has symbolic meaning, which I think is clear to most of us. John wrote the gospel much later than the other gospels. He wrote this gospel 30 to 40 years after the events took place. So John has had years of teaching other people about Jesus' life, his best friend's life, when he wrote this gospel. He is very focused in writing it. On highlighting things by exactly how he puts it together. So the third day pulls on the Old Testament reference in Hosea 6 2, where it says, On the third day, Israel will be spiritually healed and return to her Lord. And obviously, this third day is also referring to the third day that Jesus rose from the dead. See, this transformation of changing water into wine is like the transformation of life out of death. Jesus knows he's the Messiah. The Jews are expecting a Messiah. But they're absolutely not prepared for a Messiah who'd be crucified. So Jesus has to first show them that he is the Messiah before letting them know he must die. So all along the way in Jesus' journey, you see his followers believing more and more that he's the Son of God in the flesh, the long way to Messiah. And Jesus increasingly sends these little messages, these hints of his impending crucifixion and resurrection. Now, I used to be confused by this Cana passage. I was confused because it reads like Jesus didn't want to do the miracle. But his mom convinces him to change his mind, so he kind of goes, oh, mom, I guess I'll do it. Yet when Jesus says, my time has not yet come, he's actually thinking about something in that moment. For those of you who are single, when you're at a wedding, you often think, well, I wonder if I'll ever be married. If so, what will my wedding be like, and who will I marry? At the wedding in Cana, Jesus was also thinking about a wedding day, which would have stirred a lot of emotions and thoughts in him. Those thoughts are tied to how God shows us who Jesus is to us by relationship. The Old Testament shows us how God is not only our God, our king, but also our shepherd and our father. Another way God wants to relate to us, though, is seen very frequently in the image of a husband and wife. Throughout Scripture, God characterizes himself as the bridegroom and his people as the bride. We see this when somebody asks Jesus why his followers didn't fast, and Jesus declares, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? He's basically saying, I'm the bridegroom. And that's actually a pretty bold statement. In the next chapter, after the miracle of the water turning into wine, John the Baptist Baptist is asked, why are all the people that had been following him now going after Jesus? And John responds with, I am the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. And that joy is mine." And it is now complete. That is a profound statement. Who's the bride? We are, as his followers, the bride of Christ. At this wedding celebration in Cana, Jesus is thinking about his wedding day. The wedding day of all wedding days when there will be union of all his people and there will be a wedding feast that will be a wedding feast and all wedding feasts. See, that's why Jesus is troubled. He's thinking about what it will take for him to provide the wine for his wedding feast. My hour has not yet come. It's a phrase used all throughout John's writing in John 7. At this they tried to seize him, but no one had laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John eight twenty. Yet no one seized him because the hour had not yet come. Then he flips it to the other positive. He says, John twelve twenty three. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John 13, one, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. See, this hour means the hour of Jesus' death. Jesus is thinking at Cana of how the only way I'll be able to produce wine for my wedding feast, to be united with my bride, is for me to go through the hour of my death. The symbolism of the water into wine becomes more clear with what Jesus uses for the miracle. It says in the text, Nearby stood six stone jars, the kind used for Jews before ceremonial washing. So when the Pharisees or Jews went for a religious ritual, which there would have been religious rituals a part of this wedding feast as well, but especially when they went into the temple, it was their custom to wash before they went into the presence of God. Why? I mean, it didn't, really technically do anything. I mean, it removed a little dirt maybe, but it didn't technically do anything. It was a symbolic action to signify in worship that they were sinners and they needed to be cleansed to be close to God. And Jesus takes this sacred symbol practiced every day by every Jew and every Pharisee in their religious practices and uses that to show that he will be the one to cleanse their sins to give us full access to God. Jesus was likely remembering how God through Moses had turned water into blood as a curse to the Egyptians, but now he is turning water into wine, symbolic of his blood that will be shed. When Jesus is with his disciples at the Last Supper, he says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Changing the water into wine was Jesus practically spelling out his plan for salvation. The true marriage between God and humankind cannot take place without this wine, without the blood of Christ. And here's an image from the Chosen series of the wedding feast. Doesn't that look fun? Anybody been watching the Chosen it helps you imagine how Jesus was in the midst of a joyous celebration with everyone drinking and laughing and enjoying themselves. Jesus miraculously creates the wine and he joins in the celebration with them. And yet, as he does, he knows he is sipping the cup of his coming sorrow. He is sipping the curse because he knows it will bring blessing. He sips because he wants to make a way for us back into relationship with God. All of these people surrounding him have no idea what is going on in his heart and what he's setting himself to do. Even in the midst of sorrow, Jesus chooses to celebrate with them. Throughout Scripture, God continually uses sensory words in describing what living life with God is like. Just, just think about a feast, for one. The kingdom of heaven is described as a feast, and it's not like the kingdom of God starts with a feast. It is a feast. As shared earlier, God's plan is all focused on one day when we will have a feast of feasts. Again, the scripture, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best meats and the finest wines. God uses numerous sensory words. So like when the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. It actually kind of stands out that it doesn't say, know that God is good. It says, taste and see that God is good. And that's different. Why does the Bible use sensory experiences? It isn't enough just to know that God is good and loving and powerful, or is it? No, no, it's not enough just to know, because God wants you to experience Him too. Jonathan Edwards was one of the greatest American preachers of the 1700s and theologians. When you, when you see him, uh, you, you think, well, he looks kind of intense and the wig doesn't really help, does it? It just sort of surprises me when someone like him talks about experiencing God more. He's known for his great intellect. He was the president of Princeton. Yet Edwards has impacted many with his understanding that there is an intellectual understanding of Scripture and an experience of God Through scripture, Edwards drew a parallel between this taste and see verse and the idea of honey. He says, You can have a rational belief that honey is sweet, and then you can have the actual experience of honey's sweetness. And he says, The latter experience is far better. See, we can listen to sermons, we can read facts about God. But even the devil knows facts about God. The Bible continually uses sensory experiences because it is not enough to know that God is good. But we are also to taste and see and experience that God is good. See, as a Christian, we are all invited to a feast and to taste and see that God is good. You are invited to experience God, to know him relationally. I want to pull a little more into some sensory experience, a little more in the imagery of the bridegroom and how we, the church, are his bride. And this is where all the guys in the groom go, that's weird, I'm uncomfortable now, shift the conversation, Ross. I get it. But it is a main symbol all throughout the Bible and is declared in the final book, in the final chapter, which begs our attention... And invites us to meditate on it. Now, I really love doing weddings. One of the reasons is because I get the view that most of you only get if you're the groom. That's because I get I'm usually beside or right behind the groom as they are standing there in the direct line of sight to see their bride come down the aisle. I get to watch the groom see his bride, which has never looked, who has never looked so good. He's in awe and he's undone. And I can't tell you how many times I've had to reach out and grab him and say, No, it's not time to go down. You know, and pull him back. we got a couple things to do before you go down. Just hold on. Hold your horses. It makes the imagery of God that God uses even more clear for us. Because Jesus is saying, I'm the groom. And I'm so in love with you. I can hardly keep myself back from running down the aisle to you. I long to give myself to you and you to me. And this is what God wants for us to taste and see and really believe. That He wants us to experience this kind of love and be confident in that kind of love from Him. It's a kind of love that will bring you peace no matter what you face. In order to receive this kind of love, this salvation, we just simply have to admit, I need a Savior. I can't stop sinning and save myself. I believe you took the punishment for my sin. I receive your forgiveness, and I choose to follow you. Imagine what it must have been like for the bridegroom at this wedding in Cana. At some point, he becomes aware that there's no more wine. He would have sensed the apprehension and the impending shame and embarrassment running out of wine that could have caused the new bride and all of the family to just go, I can't believe you'd let this happen. But then Jesus steps in. And he provides the wine, not only wine, but the very best wine in abundance. The bridegroom gets to take all the credit for the great party, and it's Jesus, the true bridegroom, who did the miracle. See, that's what it means when we become Christians. We go to God and say, I need you, and he accepts us. And he makes us his own, a true bride, coming into oneness with the true bridegroom, with all the benefits of coming into that relationship. The divine bank account, everything else that goes along with that bride becomes ours. In summary of this amazing miracle, first we see God has power over nature. He is in control of every molecule, every atom, every cell in the universe is submitted to him. Second, we can go to God even in the small things. Some commentators question why Jesus would use his power over such a small thing as this miracle of turning water to wine, but that's who Jesus is. He cares about little things, he's a God of joy. Jesus cared that these two young lovebirds would not be shamed. If we start thinking, well, with everything going on in the world, God has bigger issues to deal with than my puny little issues, this miracle challenges us and invites us to grow in our confidence that God cares about the big things and the puny things in our lives. He's your bridegroom, He's filled with love and concern for you. And third, Jesus practiced joy in the midst of sorrow, grief, and brokenness, and we can too. With all the violence in the world, the uncertainty of what's going on, health concerns that may be in, in your life or other people around you, and we could go on and list all sorts of things, sometimes it's difficult to be present to the beauty, the joy. Sometimes it can feel like we're disrespecting the pain and grief that we're feeling or that others are feeling if we choose to live in joy. And yet we see Jesus do this. He is in the middle of the celebration and very present in the sorrow that he will endure at the same time, and he chooses joy in the midst of it. For Ash Wendy, Wednesday, we identified spiritual habits we were drawn to, things like fasting and Bible reading, other things that are typical habits that we're drawn to during the Lenten season. We also identified the spiritual habit of joy, and it stood out. Maybe some of you, that's a habit you need to develop. With all the negativity and the cynicism, we need to learn to pursue and notice joy. We learn to celebrate, not in order to avoid but we grow a resilient faith. We are resilient people of faith who can know the suffering of this world and yet still look for the beauty and the triumph in the brokenness and live in the joy. See, God wants us to live life, to love life. He wants us to celebrate with passion. And yes, there's also grieving. Grieving. But even in the midst of the grief, we have hope. We have a feasting kind of joyful hope in us because of Jesus. We're going to end today with communion. Communion is where we remember what Jesus said at the last meal with his closest friends before he went to the cross. This precious, sacred meal. If you are a follower of Jesus, we invite you to to partake. And if you are uncertain or if you are seeking God, we invite you to also partake by praying this prayer or something like it as you partake. Just say, Jesus, if you are as real as the communion commemorates, if you really do forgive sins and save us to be who we were really created to be, then would you show me? And by doing that, we welcome you participating in communion as well, because you're just being honest. You're celebrating what it means, and you're also being honest with God about where your faith is at. So feel free to do that if if you're not sure of your faith. Before Jesus went to the cross, he gathered his disciples, and he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me so we get to take this bread remembering that Jesus became one of us because he loves us so much and he took the stripes of the penalty that we deserve on himself so that we wouldn't too so go ahead the same way after the supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you so today as you take the cup imagine jesus drinking the wine at the wedding of cana being troubled knowing what was to come but that he would intentionally drink the cup of sorrow so that we could be saved from the penalty of our sin forgiven and we would never ever have to face sorrow alone ever again in our life think of what it cost him to have his blood poured out for you for all of us go ahead and receive Lord, we thank you that you are a God who pursues us, that you came to take the curse so that we would not have to be cursed for our sin. Thank you for bringing life where there's death. Lord, we're just grateful. Thank you that you are better than we could ever imagine. Would you stand with me? changing a little bit of the way we do some ministry around here. And I just want to invite you right now even before we sing this last song. If you go, I've had that faith that has been all knowing but I haven't experienced God then I want to invite you to take a risk today and to raise your hand and if you raise your hand we're going to pray for you so I'm going to, I'm going to tell you don't, don't raise your hand if you don't want somebody to pray for you, okay? But if you're willing to have somebody pray for you, would you raise your hand because through prayer, a lot of times, we encounter the Holy Spirit, and we know his presence. So if that's you, raise your hand, and I'm going to encourage people around to look around. If you see anybody with a hand raised, then I want you to pray for him. I also want to invite you today, too, to, I know I, I hear this oftentimes in conversation with people. They say, well, I've got some things to pray for, but it's too small. It's, you know, there's bigger things to pray for. It's not that important. If you're a person who feels that way about some needs in your life, then I want you to step out of that thinking because this is what our message confronts today. Jesus is concerned about the small things. He wants to meet you in the small and the big things. So if there's a small thing that you've said, yeah, I'm not really asking for prayer about it because it's too small, I want you to raise your hand. And I want somebody around you to pray. Anybody been saying that about a need in their life? Well, good. You guys are all doing great. And let's give our voice in worship to God. And part of our voice in worship to God in this moment is that we're also listening to God to see if He wants to give you a gift for somebody else here. If God wants to speak to you about somebody else here and encourage them. Okay? So let's worship God and ask Him to come and speak to us. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, Go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.